If you work in a large organization and you've wondered why work can feel so stressful and full of anxiety, today's interview is for you. Join me as I interview Yvonne Caputo. She has had an extensive background working in large corporate organizations, helping teams, some of them which weren't always getting along. And I ask her some very pointed questions that I've always wondered about based on my experience with corporate things around the problem of everyone knowing that perception becomes reality of how other people perceive you, the challenge of working for people who don't always have the leadership skills and why that is, and what, what can be useful as far as helping people rise to the occasion. Since Yvonne points out that these skills simply are not taught and they can be developed, but what is the best way to optimize your ability to communicate, whether you're a manager, leader, at any level? Because most of our communication, some 90%, doesn't even come through what we're saying. And many of us are completely oblivious on how we come across. Yvonne shares some things that can be useful, and I also ask her some questions about the nature of work, the great resignation, and perhaps the way business is changing out there in terms of its consciousness, its role in, in the community. Um, so enjoy. Hey, everybody, Adele here. And today I'm so excited to have as my guest, someone that you'll really enjoy hearing from, Yvonne Caputo. Let me tell you a little bit about Yvonne and why I invited her to the podcast. First of all, hi, Yvonne. Good morning. So this is Bond's short official bio. Yvonne is deliciously semi-retired. She is a psychotherapist and a corporate trainer, and she still does some of that work. And she spent 17 years of full-time work as a vice president of HR in a retirement community. She's got a unique background that allowed her to coach both employees and supervisors for a department that wasn't getting along and helped supervisors find, find ways of effectively confronting inappropriate behavior. Uh, she has conducted mediations between employees who were not getting along and found ways to give voice to the frontline employees. So welcome to the show, Yvonne. Thank you. So Yvonne, you know, one reason why I thought you would have something refreshing to say is I'd like to have more voice given to this problem of workplace blahness. You know, we, we have millions of people who earn a livelihood in large organizations and shall we say, not feeling so happy about it. Mm -hmm. And I would love to have a little bit more in-depth discussion as to why, because I think sometimes people have sort of given up that a job in corporate could even be marginally enjoyable. Um, I have not personally found very many people yet for this podcast that loved their corporate experience. Uh, it's usually people uh, have done it for a while and then want to leave and do something else. So now we have this great resignation happening and that's interesting, but I saw your experience of working with corporate. Could you speak a little bit more on why you think work in large organizations has been so fraught with emotional challenge and disconnection? One of the things that I've read a lot about is the lack of respect 
within the workplace. The lack of respect for the frontline employee, for the middle employee, there's this general kind of feeling with organizations that's called culture. And, and if that culture isn't built upon the respect and compassion that all of us need as human beings, it can become a really difficult place to think about, I've got to go in there again today. Sure. And why do you think this is so rampant, that respect, I mean, it seems like a pretty uh, standard human decency value, but why is it not being more commonly found in large organizations? My soapbox is because we don't teach it. Say more about Pe that. Okay. So someone can have a grand idea about something to sell or an idea and they create a company and that company grows. And sometimes it grows way too fast. And the people in the positions that they're in are generally they're in because they know how to do a certain thing. I'll give an example, a nurse supervisor, somebody who's really good at giving out medications and knowing what she's doing, gets promoted to a position of supervision, but she's never had any training on how to treat people. And so what I see frequently is a lack of how-to knowledge. For example, communication. When I do leadership training, I break communication down in whether it's assertive, non-assertive, aggressive, or passive-aggressive. And it's interesting when, when I give examples that people kind of go, oh, mm. wow, never realized that. Nonverbal communication is 85 to 95% of all of the message that's being sent. So if a supervisor is staring, raising their voice, trying to get a message across, the message fails because the person receiving the message doesn't see it as being respectful to them. So for supervisors and managers and, and even for employees themselves to not understand how they're coming across and whether or not it's an effective way of coming across. Does that make sense? It does. I've always been puzzled by this because with my work with clients, because I have a lot of senior level clients, everyone tends to see themselves as the good guy and respectful of others. Like I have rarely had a client who would, would know, yeah, I'm disrespectful to people or um, they, they see it when it's, of course, done unto them. But what is it that makes this so hard? Let's say everyone thinks they're being respectful. Um, what is it about the work environment that makes it more pronounced than you might see with friends or with your family, or maybe it's translated? Can you say more about this? Because I feel like everyone thinks they're respectful, but the impact is also there. I have a story. I was doing this training with a major organization, and I knew that the CEO was in the audience because he's the one that greeted me at the door. And so here he is sitting, learning, and I'm going over what I just talked to you about, you know, the assertiveness, the non-assertiveness, the aggressiveness. 
And he raised his hand. Now, the CEO is somebody I'm going to call on, all right? And when he raised his hand, he said something. He said, Yvonne, he said, I was videotaped recently. He said, I now understand what my family has been complaining about Mm. for the last 25 years. Oh, wow. He said, I am so aggressive. He said, I never realized that I was doing it. And he said, you're absolutely right. It was my tone of voice. It was the set of my face. I just, until I saw it, I didn't know that that's how I was coming across. I think that's so interesting because we think we know, uh, well, if my intention was this, obviously I came across that way. And oftentimes that's not the case. We only notice it when it's the opposite. So I just think this is such an interesting part of human behavior and it gets magnified in the workplace. So in your experience working in these organizations, trying to help people with these crossed wires, what are some of the things you've noticed helps? And, uh, because I think by default, people might, people might feel a little either self-conscious, embarrassed, ashamed, defensive, uh, I'm always aware that I've got plenty of room for improvement, um, but I would love to hear more from you. Like, why is this so challenging? I think truly at the bottom of it all is training and education. And I'll step back a second. When I was in high school, one of the sisters insisted that I do debate. And I did it for a year and competed in debate. And at the end of that year, I went back to her and I said, I hate it. And she said to me, Yvonne, I really don't care what you stay in, in forensics. And forensics was the word used for all kinds of speaking. She said, but I'd like you to stay in. And she said, so which of the categories would you like to choose? And I said, drama. And so I became aware of how I come across. I became aware of those things. So When folks ask me, is there a way to become more aware? I I say, if you could take drama classes, if you could do stand-up comedy. I agree. And and not, yeah. I agree. I encourage my clients to do that for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's very helpful. The other piece that would be a little easier is to go to that trusted friend, to go to that person who likes you a lot, who respects you and say to them, How do I come across? Now, in my work, I have coached individuals. And some of them were open to sending out a survey, a confidential survey, to the people that they supervised. And God bless them, you know, because that's a pretty courageous thing to do. And in the survey, I asked questions about tone of voice, personal space, body language. And it came back to this supervisor. What she thought she was doing was not what she was doing. She was really kind of blown away. But again, I have to say how courageous it was of her to agree to do this in the first place. That takes a lot of guts and vulnerability and courage. I love these practical things that people can consider. I mean, you don't have to do it, but just know that it's it's one possible way. Drama, 
Absolutely. It, it gives you a chance to explore out of your box, you know, the way you come across. If you want to be really gutsy, ask people. I asked Yvonne about a question that I've always wondered about when I worked in corporate, and that's the issue around perception. That a lot of success in corporate does rely on perception of one's performance rather than an objective reality. And that that can cause a lot of anxiety in corporate settings. And this is what she had to say on the issue of perception. Well, perception is reality. Yes, exactly. Yeah, perception is reality. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a way to get at your question. I think it really starts with self-awareness. And self-awareness is not something that's taught. I didn't get it in college. I didn't get it in high school. I didn't get it anywhere. That self-awareness for me, again, came from drama. Um, there are other ways to teach it. So um, knowing yourself, knowing how you come across is a critical piece. The other thing I think is a theoretical thing. And that's that in the 1940s and 50s, the theory of management was that the people who work for you are basically lazy. And if you don't stand over them, you know, and tell them what to do and when to do and how to do it, you're not going to be a productive organization. Now, what we know in psychology and organizational development at this point is that none of that is true. That really leadership is all about creating that relationship. And creating the relationship is knowing how you come across. All right, so here I just had a thought. If I'm working with you, I need to be observing your face. I need to be watching for those cues that you might give me to let me know that perhaps I'm not seeing or doing something that feels good to you. And what comes to mind automatically is, let's say we were having a conversation, you're my employee, I'm trying to correct an error, and you start backing away from me. That to me is a signal that somehow something in my communication style is amiss. If I see you kind of curl into yourself and drop your head, it's going to make me wonder, am I coming across too hard? Or is something happening within this person that I don't know about? So it's not only being self-aware of how I'm coming across, but it means that I'm acutely aware of the body language and the tone that I'm seeing with you. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It's, this is the energetic dance between people. And in work, there's often an element of the power differential that adds to the stress versus, hey, we're just hanging out at a coffee bar, you know, friends. Mm -hmm. um, and in my work, I've noticed that this whole this thing of perception, what someone else in power thinks of me often creates a, a lasting impact on people. People still remember 10 years later what 
their former boss said to them, and it's usually not in a, a good way. And, um, you know, I feel like people are caught between economic survival sometimes mm-hmm. and wanting to be themselves. And that's very stressful, you know? Mm-hmm. It is. It, it's very stressful. So... And- do you have Go any, ahead. yeah, do you have because this is a, a a wound, I feel like that's not adequately addressed. I mean, typically management training is I'm the manager and I need to learn how to better manage my employees. Um, but I have not seen as much training around this problem of I feel like my boss sees me in a way that's not accurate, or um, I'm not allowed to be the real me. I have to keep half of myself under wraps because you know, whatever. Um, Or they said something that really upset me. I was compared against someone else unfairly or, you know, because when there's a power difference, that's when the real suffering occurs. It's all easy when it's the the upper level person getting the coaching to help the lower. But do you have any suggestions for when you're dealing with, say, a, a very difficult boss and your livelihood depends on what they think and you take that stress home, you're taking it out on your children, you don't sleep, but you need this job. That's the kind of walking wounded energetic that I, I don't see um, getting support as much as it could be. Because right now it's still on management effectiveness. You know, it's, it tends mm-hmm. to be top down. Would you like to speak to this very common problem that probably no one really talks about? Yes. One of the things that I would think about is, first of all, the economic security. When you and I talked about doing this podcast, that came to me right away. There are folks who are in jobs that they're there because they need to be. Mm -hmm. They need to put food on the table. They need to keep a roof over the house. And they don't feel like they have the flexibility to go out and find something else. So... What I would suggest is, what is your boss looking for? And I always, when I coach people, I always ask them to make lists. I ask them to put things down on paper. And as an aside to that, it's the writing and seeing something in black and white or blue and white that really helps to focus. So to to take a list and to literally write down, what is it that my boss wants me to do? What have I done in the past that he's been upset about? Have there been times, and I'm thinking of all these in in list form, have there been times when he has acknowledged good work? In that case, what was it? And and if you look at those lists, and I'll give you an example. One of the bosses I had, I noticed, was not as connected with me if I started talking about feelings, um, that this would be good for the employees. And, And I started to think about what were the things that I had done that he liked 
And I could pinpoint when I could give him data that supported an initiative that I wanted to go into, or that I'd read an article in one of the journals, you know, for the retirement community. So keying in on what the boss is looking for and understanding at the same time that you can only do the best you can do. And at the end of the day, go out to your car or whatever mode of transportation you have, or even take five or 10 minutes to sit down and have a journal and the journal that says the kinds of things that happened during the day that made me smile. The kinds of interactions that I had with other people that I felt like were really, really good. And to even put down, to kind of maybe do a little rant about something that happened that wasn't so good. And know that that book, that journal is gonna go in the glove compartment of the car. So that the minute that you walk into the house, you can say to yourself, I've left that. And for me, another thing that sounds really simplistic, but I find is helpful, is to walk into the house with a smile on my face. And greeting my kids or my, my partner with, I'm really glad to see you. Finding a way to kind of flip the switch you know, to, to say to yourself, okay, now I can be in this place in a different kind of mode. And smiling, it's, it's, it's really strange how much that can change the whole internal thing that you're working on. Uh, yeah, I love that. Just simple things. Change what you can and recognize what you can't. And since I'm a little bit of a curious idealist here, I'm just kind of curious. Do you ever fantasize or imagine that it's possible that as business evolves and people evolve and all these very learned people studying neuropsychology and all this stuff that we'll ever get to a point where work can be more enjoyable. I mean, do you think that's possible, whether it's McDonald's or, you know, running a franchise I, I was just speaking with a guest who specializes in STEM education franchises, or, I mean, or do we need to just recognize that work is a barter of, I give up part of my self to achieve a goal for you. And then after work, I'm the real me. Um, I guess that's the question. I mean, is there, do you think that work can eventually evolve so that everyone can be themselves without the whole thing blowing up into some sort of psychodrama and that the, the entity can do better because right now there's this idea employees are our most important resource. We hear that, but why is everybody so miserable at work? I guess that's my question. I mean, do you think that we're getting there or do you think it's just the way the model is? We're getting there. Okay. Now, when you, when you talked about the reality and I think I think we need to own that, that whatever it is that we need to do in order to keep that job, if 
finding another one is just not in the cards at the moment. Mm -hmm. The reality is to do the best that we can Mm -hmm. while we're there. However, saying that, um, Daniel Goldman, Emotional Intelligence, Mm -hmm. his second book now came out and it's called Social Intelligence. And in that, he talks about the neurology of toxic workplaces. And there's so much more research going on now that I'm really hopeful that somewhere down the road, it's going to be the kinds of things that are taught in business schools. Mm-hmm. Because um, yeah. there's research that's been done and those companies that treat their employees well, Wegmans, I just saw a post and a woman said on, on this, this was fascinating. She said, folks want to know why I've stayed at Wegmans for 28 years. She said, in our area of the world, there was a squall in March. There was a huge pileup on Interstate 81. Three people died. Tons went to the hospital. What Wegmans did, Wegmans had a uh, a warehouse. They opened up that warehouse. They took people in. They Mm. gave them warm clothes. They fed them. They gave them coffee. They allowed them to use their, um, their phone system and stuff so that they could call. And that's the culture of Wegmans, all right? So I want to, excuse me, piggyback that on to Daniel Goldman's work and the research that's been done, that the companies that really do well by their employees, not a statement on the wall, but really have this culture, they are more productive, they're more profitable, and there's data already there to show us that that's the case. Yeah, I think that's exciting. I mean, that's the area that I'd like to lean into. Um, and there's a lot of heavy lifting there. I mean, it's to go from the, the thing on the wall to it being operationalized. Part of me has thought that perhaps the psychology of why we have a business to begin with could change. Because I think in prior eras, the whole point of a business was to, to earn a profit you know, for shareholders, which is great. You know, I invest in things, but there was never an idea that the business existed for the people in it. You know, that there's this idea that we do this for, for the stock price, but wouldn't it be great if the whole purpose of a business was to provide for the people in the business? I mean, that's pretty radical, but it just means that perhaps the reason that Wegmans is there is to be part of the community or part of the employees who are affected by the storm or whatever, what a concept, you know, that that's sort of just baked in to the way we see a business's role rather than it's sort of being an abstract, you know, it's, it's interesting to me what the research is saying. So I think, I think it's really exciting really how business is starting to evolve. And my hope is that people start to bloom more, in their work. You and I talked before this call about the great resignation. Mm-hmm. And it's my opinion that what we're seeing is the impact of many years of people not being able to 
I don't know. How would you exp- how would you describe what's happening? From what I've read, being put in a position where folks had to work at home and the convenience of that and not having to drive and not having to go in where there's this corporate culture of angst. It created a different mindset. So and you- so when yeah. they thought about having to go back in, uh-uh, I don't so- want to do that. Say more on that. We, we know we, it's a pain in the butt to drive, gas, dressing up. But what is it about going in and being around people and that, that feeling? Like if we could describe what that is, because it's at home when we don't have that. What is that that makes people just go like this? Not feeling welcome. Not feeling prized. Not feeling respected. Not feeling like what it is that they individually are doing to add to the corporate business is honored. So imagine that people felt more respected, more honored at home without all the people staring at them, um, that the absence of that was a relief. I'm wondering what would happen if this stuff change to actually you get more respect and more whatever if you do go in I wonder what that would feel like because I think most people feel less of that when they're at home on zoom hence the great resignation Mm -hmm. but if you don't actually provide something at least this or better there's no reason to go back in but what would better feel like and that's that's the part that intrigues me so that people feel like I could work at home or I can't wait to go in because I feel more respected. Because if the energy is going one way, there should be a way to turn it around. Like once we figure out how to do that so that we don't have people just bailing on their jobs because they just don't want to be hovered over that in that way. The folks that I have talked to who've done the at home and are now going back in that are so excited about going back in is their relationships with people, the kind of work that they do. Again, that feeling valued, feeling like they're producing something for the good of the company. It's the culture. Mm -hmm. It's the culture that they're going back into, that they really missed. Wonderful. We're at home. Yeah, because it's kind of like if it's going this, if it's going one way, you should be able to re-engineer it to go the other way. That's much more attractive and magnetic because my own husband said, Zooming, it works, but it's not the full Monty. You know, people feel a little bit disconnected from their, their um, colleagues, but not enough that you want to go in. It's just a way to do the business with less energetic drain. When I was working at Frederick, it was... Knowing the people within the organization, knowing that we were going to get together as a bunch of folks for lunch, having a lot of laughter, Mm. knowing that in a retirement community, those folks were so into making the elderly feel good. So having all of that, and, and if you go back to the simple thing that this hangs on is the relationship. If it's relationship positive driven, then people are going to want to. They want to be there. Going to want to be there. 
I want to be with the party. Don't, yeah. don't miss the party. Yeah. Instead of by the sidelines on Zoom, it's, it's okay. And not feeling like you've joined the draft, forced to go in. If you think about being in a group of people, it's not something you can touch or taste or smell, but there's an energy. Yeah. There's an energy that you just can't get on Zoom. And so if that's the kind of energy that's prized in the place of business, folks are going to want to come back. And I do know, again, from the research that I've done and the reading that, I, that, I, that I've done, there are companies that are like that. Mm. There are companies that are like that. And that really comes from the top down. And to the start of what you, we were talking about, that doesn't just magically happen. That takes people who are willing to invest in how do I come across, like all that inner work. I think I agree with you. Most people are not equipped. Our culture has not built a very awareness, you know, in, in humanoids to just start a company and have it be just marvelous place to work. It takes a lot of intention. It doesn't take from just being a nice person. You know. I'll give you an example. In the retirement community that I worked, there was the need to create a new building. So they worked with the architects and all this kind of stuff. One of the managers took the architectural drawings, laid them out on the table, and had everybody in the department sitting around that table. Housekeeping, laundry, aides, nurses and said, okay, this is what's being proposed. What do you think? Well, there's all kinds of chatter. Can you imagine all kinds of chatter? And the housekeeper raised her hand and she said, this doesn't work. And the manager said, why? What's wrong with it? And she said, well, look, the housekeeping closet is right off the family area. You don't want us walking with our carts when families are in there having conversations with their loved ones. And this was for a new dementia unit. And of course, out of the mouths of the people who work there. So that's the kind of thing that organizations can do. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. And it encourages the next leadership level to say, because there's not everyone's going to get what they want, right? Let's right. say the housekeeper and the janitor or the, and the cooks don't agree. And one gets what they want. The other one didn't. Later, it's like, well, I said. Da, 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 da. And how to like allow people to express without feeling like that their voice didn't matter. Because we can't always get everything. And there's always going to be someone who sometimes feels a little bit like, why did you ask me if you're not going to? You know, that, that takes a lot of stamina from a leader, not a manager. And that's exciting because you're leaning into relationships again. How can you encourage people to keep talking if you didn't get what you wanted? Speak up anyway, instead of feeling disrespected or, or disconnected. And I think that's one reason why managers don't want to do it. <laughs> They're afraid of the soap opera later. It, it, it takes work. Yeah. It does. It takes work. Deming, who was the guru who went into Japan after the Second yes. World War, basically said to the leaders, to the top people, I want to talk to your folks. And I want to find out from your folks what works and what doesn't works. And I'm going to tape it and I'm going to bring it back to you. And over and over and over again, 
when Demi would ask what's wrong and people would speak up and he would say, well, have you told leadership that that's why the widget isn't coming out correct? Yeah. The response was, they don't ask us. Yeah, I studied uh, Deming's work in grad school, statistical process control, quality function deployment, all that stuff. And it was a big brain burp for the big four automakers at that time. Uh, very threatening because there's this idea that the manager knows more than the person actually doing the work somehow, that the higher up you go means more IQ or whatever. But these are the questions that I think are just swimming around in our culture in workplace right now. I'm so excited that the way you're adding the dimensionality of people, um, I don't think it gets enough attention. We do a lot of things on process or um, strategy, but this thing that cannot be smelled, taste, touched, we want to create a place that feels like a party. Don't you want to be part of it? And there'll be days you'll be storming and norming, but it's all right. You won't get your head cut off. And that's the type of environment where people can start to slowly become more of themselves. Instead of, like I said, I work with executives t 20 years later, they're still dealing with the trauma of what happened. And it's quite deep in there. So we, mm -hmm. we clear it out, you know. I wish we had more time. Thank you so much for sharing. Yvonne, if people want to know more about your work, how can people contact you? Okay. Well, at this point of my career, I am doing some corporate training, but not a lot. My focus is on being an author. And that's a brand new gig for me. So they can find me at ingeniumbooks.com. That's my publisher, slash Yvonne Caputo. And folks, don't have to write it down. I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's really exciting right now for everyone who's sharing their voice, sharing their wisdom. What did you learn in corporate? This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Fun for me too. Good. All right, everybody. Till next time. Bye. Thanks.